pursuit of godliness in this life really boils down to the pursuit of joy. When our soul realizes that true and lasting joy is in conformity to our maker, we pursue conformity to our maker in the same way that we pursue our own joy. Now let's look to the fruit of the heartfelt pursuit of godliness. The heartfelt pursuit of godliness. So what is it that motivates us for godliness of life? What is it that motivates us to do battle with sin, to fight, to kill sin, to do as Jesus says in Luke's gospel, to strive to enter through the narrow gate for few will find it? That word that Luke used there literally means agonize. So Jesus is saying, agonize to enter through the narrow gate for few will be the number that find it. What is it that motivates us to do that? I mean, our salvation is certain in Christ. It's God's work. If anything comes through Ephesians chapter 1, loud and clear, it's that. That our salvation is God's work. We didn't do it. We didn't earn it. We can't negate it. Nothing can take us from Jesus' hand. Okay? So, if all that is true, and it is, what is it that then motivates us to strive, to work, to yearn, to agonize for godliness of life? What's our motivation? The Scriptures tell us that our motivation is our reward, is that confident expectation of our reward. We can see this in 1 John chapter 3. Look at 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. So there is, number one, a recognition of the present condition. My present condition, says John, and your present condition, says John, is that we are children of God, and we are, and we are the objects of God's love. And being the objects of God's love, We are the eternal objects of God's love. John says that clearly elsewhere, that if we're the objects of God's love, that's an eternal, everlasting, never-ending love. And so John begins by recognizing we have this condition, this situation, this position of being the objects of God's love. We are in Christ. But then he goes on, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So we talked about that last Sunday. That that has to do with our perfect moral conformity with our Maker. And that is a big part of our eternal enjoyment of the promises, the blessings, the inheritance that's ours. So that's what He says there. We shall be like Him when He appears because we shall see Him like He is. But look at what He says in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, purifies Himself. Okay, so let me put that plainly. John says, everyone who has this hope, and the hope is that we shall one day be pure like Christ because we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has the hope to one day be pure like Christ does what? Purifies Himself. Either you are purifying yourself or you don't have the hope. 
If you have the hope, you're purifying yourself. If you're not purifying yourself, you don't have the hope. If that's not true, then John wasn't truthful with us because he says very plainly, everyone who has that hope, the hope to see Christ and to be made like Christ, does this, they purify themselves. That's the plain statement there, but what's the motive behind it? What's the driving force for the one who knows that the day will come when they will be pure and without sin? What's the motive to make them strive for sinless, sinlessness now in a life in which we know we can't perfectly achieve that? The motive is this. The one who has the Spirit illumined in their heart, the confidence of that blessed hope, the confidence of that assurance of faith, or the assurance of reward, the confidence that we will one day be made pure like Him, that one also has the Spirit illumined to him or to her, the truth and the reality that in that purity lies eternal perfect happiness. And so the one who is dwelt by, indwelt by the Spirit knows my perfect happiness is in perfect purity. And if my perfect happiness lies in perfect purity, in that life, happiness in this life lies in the same place, my striving for purity. And so therefore, I will strive for purity in this life because by doing so, I am striving for my own joy. Now that was a mouthful. So let me, let's go back through that a little bit. The one who is indwelt by the Spirit has been shown the truth that one day we will, we will see Him. And when we see Him, we will be glorified. We will be pure like Him. And we also know that in that purity lies our perfect eternal happiness. How do we know that? The Spirit has taught us that. That is now our soul's instinct. Now listen carefully. I'm not saying that we sort of go through that cognitive reasoning. Every time we're com confronted with a temptation, we say to ourselves, well, that's not really what's going to make me happy, so I'm, no. We don't do that. No. It's much deeper than that. It's at a far deeper level than that. The Spirit who utters groanings that are too deep for words, the Spirit is what teaches us deep down in our soul, that's not where happiness lies. Now, we don't always listen to that. And we don't always do it. But this is why the true Christian never has happiness in sin. Is that true? Do you have happiness in sin? No, you don't. If you do, then you are not a child of God. If you're a child of God, you still sin, but you don't have happiness in that sin. Why? Because the Spirit is deep inside you, saying to you, teaching you, illumining your heart to say, that's not where happiness is. That's not where it is. Where it is, is in purity. Where happiness is, is in conformity to your maker. And so even though the wheels of our cognitive minds don't process that way, our soul is given an instinct. And the instinct is to say, I can do this. And I can pretend to be happy and maybe even a little bit of happiness will come, but that's not where happiness lies. That 
is the true and genuine motive for the pursuit of godliness in this life. And ironically, the pursuit of godliness in this life really boils down to the pursuit of joy. When our soul realizes that true and lasting joy is in conformity to our maker, we pursue conformity to our maker in the same way that we pursue our own joy. God does not ask the Christian to just put aside their desires for joy. God says to the child of of His, go for joy with all you've got. Understand that your joy is in me and then go for it for all you're worth. That's our true and genuine motive for joy. And look at just how consistently the scriptures will connect together the pursuit of godliness and this fulfillment of joy in our life. Psalm 1, blessed, again, happy, joyful, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the description of a blessed, joyful, happy person. The one who goes hard after the morality of his maker. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Does that sound like stability of soul? See how all these are just interconnected? They're all, it's almost hard to separate them out because they're all so interconnected. Stability of soul? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. Or look at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit those who mourn over their own sin, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful. All those are character traits of God. Blessed are those who pursue those those character traits. Happy, joyful are those who pursue those character traits. And then look at what he says in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now think about this. John said, those who see Jesus will be made pure in heart. And by being made pure in heart, we recognize that's where our true happiness is and we, tr- we pursue purity in heart now. So John says, when we see Jesus, we'll be made pure in heart. Jesus says, blessed are those who are pure in heart because they will see God. Looks like a wonderful circle again, doesn't it? Look at Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. How does the Spirit of God train us? Do we attend a class? Does he give handouts and have a whiteboard and give us diagrams that we memorize? How does God train us? By the Holy Spirit teaching our soul purity of life holds true happiness. Training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Verse 13 
waiting for our blessed hope. See the same theme. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We could say more about that, but let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So in other words, Peter says, knowing that this world will end, that this world will be burned up and regenerated and reborn. Knowing this, how should you therefore live now? Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Pretty plain. And again, we could say more about that, but we can just summarize all that by saying that if we find our drive, our desire, our yearning, our striving, our agonizing for holiness in life, if we find that weak, if we find our resolve to battle against sin, to be weak and anemic in this life, where do we look? What do we bolster? We bolster our hope. We fill our thoughts with thoughts of the inheritance, the reward, the blessings of completed salvation, all those things that we talked about last week and the week before. Now let's look next at the fruit of confident composure as death approaches. The fruit of confident composure as death approaches. So death is, as the cliche goes, something that touches all of us. There will be In the eternal kingdom, there will be a speck, a speck of souls there who are there without experiencing death. But for the vast, vast number of souls in the eternal kingdom, they will get there by means of death. Now that death is something that the scriptures have quite a lot to say to us about, particularly about in the realm of our hope and what our hope means for us. Look at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. So there is a type of grief that accompanies death for those who have no hope. And that is, as Paul says, categorically different from the type of grief that those experience who have the hope that Paul talks about. Now Paul is going to take a few sentences to remind or to educate or inform or to speak about the hope which is the source of or or the foundation for a type of grieving that's categorically different from those who have no hope. He says... For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be always with the Lord. So there he just goes on to enunciate 
some things about this hope, some things about that inheritance, specifically how it is that we're ushered into the, into the inheritance. And he says that this is a hope that is, again, substantively different from those who face the coming death, either their own death or the death of a loved one. They are facing that prospect without this hope. He's, Paul says that's categorically different. So those who face this with no hope, that's the only way they can face that. Because Paul can say these things. Now, how, how, would, how would we believe these things? These things about the Lord coming in the air and trumpets and caught up to meet Him and with Him forever. How do we know those things and how do we believe those things? Because the Spirit has taught us. And if the Spirit is not in them, they have no hope. They can't possibly believe that because those things are unbelievable for people who are natural persons. They're only believable for those who are supernatural persons, who have had the Spirit of God teach them and enlighten them to teach their hearts, these things are real, these things are true, and these things, you can place confidence, confident assurance in these things. So this is a collectiveness, this is a, a firmness, an assurance when facing the coming death, either the death of a loved one, in Christ, or our own death. How often do you think about death? Probably depends on your age. But here's the thing. Every Christian, every Christian, should train themselves to think about death every single day. Because you see, for the world, the world doesn't know what to do with death. It comes to everybody, and the, even the world knows that. But the world doesn't know what to do with it. And so here's what the world tries to do with death. Either ignore it, pretend it's not coming, live for the moment, put it off as long as you possibly can, devote yourself to, to health, and not that that's bad, but devote yourself to healthy living so that you can put off that as long as possible. Or glamorize it, glorify it, turn it into some wonderful, magnificent achievement. You know, every movie about heroes, the one who dies and dies heroically and all this sort of thing, so that death brings something to a person, some nobility to a person that they didn't have before. Or maybe the world just gets really macabre about it, really dark and celebrates it. But the bottom line is the world doesn't know what to do with death. Only the Christian knows what to do with death. Only the Christian knows that death itself is not something to be celebrated. Death itself is not something to be anticipated. But on the other side, on the other side, is a glorious reward. Have you ever been with a Christian who died well? Have you ever been in that room with a Christian who died well? The thing is, when a Christian dies well, there's still a struggle. I've been there enough to, to know that there's still a struggle. There's still difficulty. There's still pain. 
But there is a hope and there is an anticipation and there is a firmness of assurance of what this will take them to that so far surpasses the discomfort and the anxiety that also comes along with that. It is a glorious thing to be there when a Christian dies well, dies with a stable soul, dies with a focus on the blessed hope that's on the other side of this unpleasant thing. And for that reason, death should be something that you think about every day. Death should be something the Christian prays about every day. Lord, give me the focus on my blessed hope that I might die well for those who are watching me. So it gives us the confidence, the composure to face death well. Now let's look lastly at the fruit of substantive mutual encouragement. Substantive mutual encouragement. So notice what Paul finishes that previous passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. Notice how he finishes this little talk that he gives about this hope that's coming. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. So the first thing that I noticed there is that Paul didn't say, therefore, be encouraged by my words, which is true. Reading those words of Paul, the reader would have been encouraged to read that. But Paul didn't say, be encouraged by my words. Neither did he say, encourage yourself. He would have used what in Greek is known as the middle voice, where, where one's acting on themselves and encourage yourself. Encourage yourself with these words. He didn't say that. Furthermore, he didn't say, the one who is discouraged and downhearted and downtrodden among you, go to the elders of the church and have the elders of the church encourage him with these words. No, what he said was, you take these words and you encourage one another with these words. You are spirit indwelt. The spirit has taught you the truth of your inheritance. The spirit has taught you confident assurance. You know these things, so take these things and use them to encourage one another. Like he says to the Romans in Romans 15, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and not only filled with all knowledge, but able to instruct one another. You are indwelt by the Spirit, and the Spirit has made you capable, has made you able to instruct one another, the same thing he says here, the Spirit has made you able to encourage one another, not with just any old words, but with these words. So here we have the fruit of substantive encouragement to brothers and sisters. Now, by substantive encouragement, here's what I mean. It's just encouragement that has substance to it. You know, there, there are different ways to encourage one another, different kinds of encouraging words. And most of them kind of have their place, but, but a lot of them go like this, and you'll, you'll kind of recognize these words of, of encouragement. Something like, it can't get any worse. It can only get better. Look for the silver lining on the cloud. What goes around comes around. Now, all of those things, and many more, have their place, and they can be encouraging in a way. But at the end of the day, aren't they just words? 
Isn't silver linings on cloud? I mean, isn't that just words at the end of the day? But our hope, our inheritance, gives us not just flowery words. It gives us real, substantive, meaningful words of encouragement to say to one another. What would be the difference between a Christian who's downhearted, the world's got you down, your own sin has got you down, whatever, and another brother or sister comes along and says, stiff upper lip and all that, buck up. What's the difference between that and saying, sister, there's a reward. I know it, and you know it. There's a reward. And that reward is eternal joy. That reward is sameness with our maker. That reward is fellowship with our maker. And you know that to be true. I'm reminding you of what you know. What's the difference in those two things? Will one go a whole lot further than the other? That's what I mean by the fruit of substantive, real words of encouragement. And we have those words. We have these substantive words of encouragement that we have had the Spirit implanted into our own souls that we can offer to one another. Words like, we don't lose heart for our outer bodies wasting away, though our inner body is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the fruit of substantive brotherly encouragement. 